Thank you for tuning in to the weekend special of The Federal's Files. On today's show, The Times admits collusion in election. Bank of America gives user information to the FBI. More about the gun control bill and Biden's executive order to incentivize an immigrant welfare state. As always, folks, I have a bunch of information as it relates to uh, the news coming in. I have a lot going on. But first, I want to get to this because I think it's pretty significant. Uh, Tucker Carlson came on his show a couple days ago, uh, about two nights ago. He was talking about how there is reports now coming out that the that Bank of America, anyone that's familiar with them or, or is a, a customer there, I would highly advise you to shut your account down because it seems like, based on the information that Tucker Carlson has, the Bank of America has been sharing financial information with the FBI in relation to the January 6th ride at the Capitol building. Uh, he goes in depth on this. Check it out. This show has obtained exclusively evidence that Bank of America, the second largest bank in the country with more than 60 million customers, is actively but secretly engaged in the hunt for extremists in cooperation with the government. Bank of America is, without the knowledge or the consent of its customers, sharing private information with federal law enforcement agencies. Bank of America effectively is acting as an intelligence agency, but they're not telling you about it. In the days after the January 6th riot at the Capitol, Bank of America went through its own customers' financial and transaction records, a lot of them. Now, these were the private records of Americans who had committed no crime. People who, as far as we know, had absolutely nothing to do with what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. But at the request of federal investigators, Bank of America searched its databases looking for people who fit a specific profile. Here's what that profile was, and we are quoting. Customers confirmed as transacting, either through bank account, debit card, or credit card, purchases in Washington, D.C., between January 5th and January 6th. Number two, purchases made for hotels, Airbnb, RSVPs in Washington, Virginia, or Maryland after January 6th. Number three, any purchase of weapons or at a weapons-related merchant between January 7th and their upcoming suspected stay in the DC area around Inauguration Day. And four, airline-related purchases sixth, sixth, since January 6th, end quote very wide net, an absurdly wide net. Bank of America identified a total of 211 customers who met these, quote, thresholds of interest. And it was at that point, the show has learned, Bank of America turned over the results of its internal scan to federal authorities, apparently without notifying the customers who were being spied upon. So what they did may actually be illegal. They may stand a class action suit for giving information without any type of uh, warrants because the FBI did not obtain any warrants on these individuals. The the Bank of America Bank of America decided upon their own will and power to share private bank records with a federal government uh, investigatory agency. So that is probably illegal, if I had to guess, considering they did not. There was no. Um, there's no consent given by the by the members at that bank. Now, is this the country? Here's the real question: Is especially to any liberals that are listening, is this the country that we now want to live in? 
where you can be pointed out for being in a particular place. You know how you know how uh, people get incarcerated. They say I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Is this what we're doing now? We are getting people being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Now we are going to investigate them, treat them as criminals, and then throw them in the slammer. We're going to give out all of their personal information to. Uh, to, to the investigator, investigatory wing of the federal government and the FBI's that we're going to do now. And just anyone that, and these are all allegations, I need to say that first, but if this turns out to be true, anyone that's that has their money in Bank of America, I would pull your money out immediately. It's obvious at this point that there's a concerted effort amongst the big corporations and the federal government. Anyone that doesn't see that. So, so now, just so everyone understands, if you know, if you want to know who it is, that is on the side of the federal government and on the side of the swamp rats, it seems like it's the big corporations. The big corporations know, hey, if we give in to the federal government on, on this or that, little small things, then we get to keep our money and we get to keep ourselves in, in power. And the government's not going to, we're going to get special tax rates or special uh, tax incentives comparatively to small business that is not going to get that. And this is further explained, and that just kind of opens it up. But here's the the real question is, do you want to live in a spy state where now you have a social score? Because that's what goes on in China. They have social scores for people uh, based on who they know, what they do. So based now, you're conservative. Uh, you do not... You, you are on a bunch of conservative pages. You don't invest your money with non-conservative outlets. Now your social score is very low. So you're not now you're not accepted into... Um, into certain banks, banks won't give you loans because you're a conservative. This, this is this is what we are headed towards. We are headed towards a discrimination based on political ideology. We will be discriminated against as conservatives. And now what we need to do is actually create another a whole other economy, a a horizontal economy, if you will, on the same level of what is currently here, but just for conservatives. Because this is the world that we're, the divisive world that we have now created now to be clear during the trump administration was this going on yeah it may have but it's it always has been ever since the beginning of the trump administration has been the exact same way though it has been the left it has been the left discriminating against conservatives it has not been conservatives discriminating against democrats that has not been happening democrats have not been getting purged out of places they have not been getting kicked out that is just not the truth uh, what it has been, it has been the left kicking conservatives out of spaces that they control. It is the other way around. We're living in a world where to be a conservative is considered extreme and aggressive, and it's something that, pe they, that people fear you because they actually are afraid of your ideas because you can prove them wrong. That's really what it comes down to. And then they label, everyone gets labeled now too as well as a white supremacist, thus losing its meaning. And now what we also have going on is in our military, they stop military operations or some, something of that nature. They stop some sort of military operation uh, for six months because now they need to weed out the white supremacists in the military. Um, now, I've, I've listened to many former military officers talk about this at length. And they're saying that the woke culture and the woke nature has infiltrated our military services branch. And the only way that it will be purged is going to be a bloody uh, battle where the United States gets defeated by another nation that is, that is somewhat of the same power as the United States of America. Which is troubling. So, so essentially what they're saying is the people at the very top 
not the rank and file officers, but the people at the very, very top are politically appointed. And the power structure goes from the top down as a hierarchy in the military. And they're the ones that are imposing this doctrine of woke culture and people that were in, and Buck Sexton actually said in his show the other day, he was in the CIA working alongside soldiers in, in Iraq years ago. And he said on the walls inside their military base, was, there were posters talking about diversity and inclusion and how that makes them a better fighting force. And he looked at it and he goes, what kind of woke garbage is this? Who's putting this together? This is not conducive to the military. The military, the point of the military is to win, to win. A battle, a bloody battle. We're not the military is not out there to do the woke culture, the the soft, uh, you know, cotton candy liberal garbage that has been imposed on our children in school and on our culture in general. Uh, they're not about the cancel culture. Everyone gets along in the military. They don't care about color. It doesn't matter your creed. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is you are you are fighting for the United States, and I am fighting for the United States as well. And that's all we really care about. And it's just it's unbelievable. Now what we're doing is we're doing the woke garbage, and now apparently there's tons of white supremacists that are in the military. Uh, and, and just to be clear as well, if you really think that these people that went and attacked the the Capitol building were legitimate white supremacists, then you truly do not know who real white supremacists are. You think white supremacists, if they're so bad and so mighty, the way that you, so evil, the way that you uh, state that they are, do you think they're going to show up to the Capitol building with no, no guns? They're going to show up unarmed to the Capitol building and push around a couple cops and then break in and then just walk around, pretty much take and do a photo shoot and take pictures of themselves and then get escorted out and get arrested later. Do you think the white supremacists, the, the these people that that you state are so terrible, and and you say the FBI, it's on their number one watch list, the, the white supremacists, do you think that they are just going to walk into the Capitol building, as imposing and as powerful as they are, unarmed? And they're not, they're not going to do anything, and then they're going to walk out. With no guns. That's just, it is nonsensical. To think that these white supremacists, if you, if you really think these people, here's what my answer is. Those are not the white supremacists. If you think there are white supremacists out there, yeah, I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're right. There are white supremacists out there. And the dangerous ones that you're referring to are not the ones that showed up on January 6th. They're just not. I'm sure the FBI would also agree with me. That's all I'm going to say about that. It's not people that are showing up unarmed, uh, jokingly taking pictures like it's a big, like it's a big photo op. So what I have today is I have a lot of topics. First off, I want to get to this Times piece. Uh, the Times admits collusion in the election, and it is very the way in which it's worded too is just uh, the actual the actual title is the secret history of the shadow campaign that saved the 2020 election. It's written by Molly Ball. It goes in depth. I'm going to have a couple screenshots here, but it starts off talking about this guy named Mike Podhorzer. He is the senior advisor to the president of the AFL-CIO. AFL-CIO is kind of related to unions, stuff like of that nature. Before, these guys used to be opposed to the Chamber of Commerce. Chamber of Commerce technically isn't actually a wing of the federal government, but rather just a bunch of rich guys that get together and they talk about what's the best for the economy. Uh, they're more like these, supposed to be like the economists kind of. You know, so it starts off this piece. In a way, Trump was right. 
there was a conspiracy unfolding behind the scenes, one that both curtailed the protests and coordinated the resistance from CEOs. Both surprises were the results result of an informal alliance between left-wing activists and business titans. The pact was formalized in a terse, little-noticed joint statement of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the AFL-CIO published on Election Day. Both sides would come to see it as a sort of implicit bargain inspired by the summer's massive, sometimes destructive racial justice protests and what the forces of labor came together with the forces of capital to keep the peace and oppose Trump's assault on democracy. So... They're gonna lay. They're laying it out here that there is. They even say a conspiracy. There was a conspiracy, and this is a left-wing author that trashes Trump relentlessly in this one. But I'm just gonna have a couple of notes to summarize here. They are noting that there is a conspiracy that was unfolding behind the scenes. It seems like a bunch of these big-time CEOs and and they call them the what she she refers to them as the Titans, the Chamber of Commerce, and the AFL-CIO, the the unions. And the rich guys that run businesses got together here to, to push Trump out, essentially. Now, it goes on. The handshake between business and labor was just one component of a vast cross-partisan campaign to protect the election, an extraordinary shadow effort dedicated not to winning the vote, but to ensuring it would be free and f- fair, credible, and uncorrupted. For more than a year, a loosely organized coalition of operatives scrambled to shore up America's institutions as they came under simultaneous attack from remorseless pandemic and an autocratically inclined president. Though much of this activity took place on the left, it is was separate from the Biden campaign and crossed ideological lines with crucial contributions by nonpartisan and conservative actors. The scenario the shadow campaigners were desperate to stop was not a Trump victory. So you have people behind the scenes giving a lot of money to the DNC, to the Democrat Party, and, and giving a bunch of funding for get-out-to-vote campaigns. Um, notice how... She refers to him the autocratically inclined president, but doesn't come up with any type of receipts or any type of uh, data to show that that's true, obviously. And it goes on. Uh, that's why the participants want the secret history of the 2020 election told, even though it to- it sounds like a paranoid fever dream, a well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industries and ideologies, working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions, change rules and laws, steer media uh, coverage, and control the flow of information. They were not rigging the election. They were fortifying it. And they believe the public needs to understand the system's fragility in order to ensure that democracy in America endures. So, by the way, influencing perceptions, changing rules and laws, and doing it, by the way, changing rules and laws unconstitutionally, steering media coverage, controlling the flow of information in a general sense. But that's not considered rigging the election to them. That's, um, that is just fortifying it in their favor, of course. It's unbelievable. So next we got the securing the vote part. Uh, The first task was overhauling America's bulky uh, election infrastructure in the middle of a pandemic for the thousands of local, mostly nonpartisan officials who administer elections. The most urgent need was money. They needed protective equipment like masks, gloves, and hand sanitizer. They needed to pay for postcards letting people know they could vote absentee or in some states to mail ballots to every voter. They needed additional staff and scanners to process ballots. In March, activists appealed to Congress to steer COVID relief 
money to election administration led by the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. More than 150 organizations signed a letter to every member of Congress seeking $2 billion in election funding. It was somewhat successful. The CARES Act, passed later that month, contained $400 million in grants to state election administrators, but the next tranche of relief funding didn't add to that number. It was go- wasn't going to be enough. So what we're saying is we had activists going out there saying, hey, we need more election money so then we can tell people to get out to vote. And they were specifically targeting areas that they know knew were vote, would vote Democratic. And additionally, they used government influence and government power to get $400 million worth of grants to state election administrators that they can then use for their get-out-to-vote effort. To, so for them to make it like, and they say this, full disclosure, uh, the, the Biden administration wasn't involved. It was a concerted effort from a bunch of people that were independent that's not true in what she's saying right here that it just is not true she says that to cover herself so there can be no investigation of that because there's probably some sort of actual legitimate election fraud if that was being done so next private philanthropy stepped into the breach an assortment of foundations contributed tens of millions in election fund uh election administration funding the chan zuckerberg initiative uh, chipped in $300 million. So that is Mark Zuckerberg. Um, Amber McReynolds, a former Denver election official who heads the nonpartisan National Vote at Home Institute, states it was a failure at the federal level that 2,500 local election officials were forced to apply for philanthropic grants to fill their needs. End quote. So what they're saying is that the federal government should have should have actually given them the money so that they can try to concert themselves and only target people that vote Democrat to win the election. That should have been done by the federal government, should have handed them the money. They shouldn't have even had private money. So you had Zuckerberg go out there and give them $300 million. So just so everyone knows, you know now what side the tech titans are on. You know what side Facebook's on. Now, this is this is another important part here. This is titled the Disinformation Defense. They go on to mention Laura Quinn, a veteran progressive operative who co-founded Catalyst, and she's involved with this as well. See, the most important takeaway from Quinn's research, however, was that engaging with toxic uh, content only made it worse. When you get attacked, the instinct is to push back, call it out, say, this isn't true, Quinn says. But the more engagement something gets, the more the platform boosts it. The algorithm reads that as, oh, this is popular. People want more of it. The solution, she concluded, was to pressure platforms to enforce their rules both by removing content or accounts that spread disinformation and by more aggressively policing it in the first place. She states, The platforms have policies against certain types of malign behavior, but they haven't been enforcing them. So we had uh, we had these Democrat activists go and tell these big tech giants, you have to enforce the rules, you need to shut down conservative content, because instead of, and, and you notice it says toxic content, it doesn't say inaccurate, uh, untrue, invalid content. It says toxic content. So toxic content is a very broad term that you can use to describe anything that you disagree with. So when that's attacked, when you go to attack that, it seems to get more popular because you go to put a comment, then more people comment, the more engagement it starts to show up on people's feeds. What she's saying is you need to change the, we, we push them to change the algorithm so it doesn't show up on people's feeds. Stuff that we disagree with. Not stuff that's incorrect, stuff that we disagree with. 
Quinn's research gave ammunition to advocates pushing social media platforms to take a harder line. In November 2019, Mark Zuckerberg invited nine civil rights leaders to dinner at his home, where they warned him about the danger of the election-related falsehoods that were already spreading unchecked. It took pushing, urging, conversations, brainstorming, all of that to get to a place where we ended up with more rigorous rules and enforcement, says Vanita Gupta, president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, who attended the dinner and also met with Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and others. Gupta has been nominated for Associate Attorney General by President Biden. So here's the thing. I thought all these people weren't involved with the Biden administration. I guess they are because now they're being nominated to be the associate attorney general. That is a that is a politically appointed position. What is it? What did this this uh, Vanita Gupta do to get into that position? That's what the question is. And everybody knows what they did. They pressured they pressured these these tech oligarchs to push more and more more suppression of conservative content. Now, there's another quote that, uh, I don't even know if Vanita's a, a man or a woman, but I'm just going to assume it's a she because it ends with an A. Uh, she states this now, and I quote, It was a struggle, but we got to the point where they understood the problem. Was it enough? Probably not. Was it later than we wanted? Yes. But it was really important given the level of official disinformation, and they had those rules in place and were tagging things and taking them down. End quote. So that was the key. The key was to get things taken down that they disagreed with. And then they say it's mis disinformation or misinformation. Uh, they're saying disinformation. Misinformation would be something that you put up there with good intent that you didn't actually think was was invalid. Disinformation is the assumption that you put up there with bad intent knowing that it's a total lie. That's the difference between the two. So very lastly here. It says strange bedfellows, and this this gives you a little bit of an outlook on how deep it had to do with the rich, the filthy rich, with uh, teaming up with the unions in order to attempt to win an election. Now, and I'm probably gonna, I'm sure I'll get canceled off of YouTube for this. I'm probably gonna get a second strike or something of that nature. I'll get it taken down. I'm sure. Strange bedfellows. About a week before election day, Podhorzer, who is the uh, that vice president guy, the lead, the council of the AFL-CIO, received an unexpected message. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce wanted to talk. The AFL-CIO and the Chamber have a long history of antagonism. Though neither organization is explicitly partisan, the influential business lobby has poured hundreds of millions of dollars into Republican campaigns, just as the nation's unions funnel hundreds of millions to Democrats. On one side is labor, on the other management locked in an internal eternal struggle for power and resources so just be clear uh yes the unions generally vote heavy democrat uh the unions from what i understand from what i've seen from my unions unions are in bed with management all of the time that's what it always seems like to me so i don't really trust unions as much as i trust the employer i would actually probably trust the employer more because i think unions will legit just lie right to your face because they think you're so stupid that you won't go and read the union guide and read the actual union rules so i'm not a huge fan of public sector unions at all i think they should all be abolished public sector private sector that's at the discretion of the people that work there it is what it is if the business owner decides that that he's okay with them having a union there's nothing you can do about that but as it relates to public sector unions every single one of them should be abolished because the people themselves are not voting on whether it's okay or not to spend their tax dollars on union garbage 
But behind the scenes, the business community was engaged in its own anxious discussions about how the election and its aftermath might unfold. The summer's racial justice protests had sent a signal to business owners, too. The potential for economy disrupting civil disorder. With tensions running high, there was a lot of concern about unrest around the election or a breakdown in our normal way we handle contentious elections, says Neil Bradley, the chamber's executive vice president and chief policy officer. These worries had led the chamber to release a pre-election statement with Business Roundtable, a Washington-based CEO's group, as well as Association of Manufacturers, Wholesalers, and Retailers calling for patience and confidence as votes were counted. So, this, this, I mean, this is a huge article. I really, this one out of anything that I've probably ever put out that I really do, I highly suggest you read this. They also go into much more detail talking about how there was supposed to be some sort of fight after election day. They thought the Proud Boys and Antifa were going to go head to head, but then they tried to, they quelled that themselves through media advertising and shutdowns. They said it, they say it in this article. Now, you see suddenly now the big businesses, the big companies, the, the business community, they care because the potential for economy disrupting civil order, they are worried about their dollar. That is the only reason that they go ahead to attempt to push a Biden for president. And the reason they do this is, I've explained this before, if you raise the regulation, you raise the minimum wage, this will not hurt big organizations, this will not hurt big companies. This will hurt the middleman, this will hurt the guy, the small business owner that cannot afford to pay astronomical amounts of money uh, for regulations, because when there's more regulation, you have to get more lawyers involved, there's more legal fees, and then you also have to get an accountant involved, and then to pay a minimum wage on top of all of that, it's just, it's just extraordinarily difficult for the small business owner. When the small business owner has to shut down their business and liquidate, guess who takes up their consumer base? It is big corporations. That is the reason that the big corporations now realize we don't need to vote for Republicans. We can just vote for Democrats because Democrats will rig the game in our favor through regulation, uh, other 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 policies that they decide to codify. They will find a way to rig the game, give us personal incentives. They will incentivize us and give us personal tax incentives that are not given to small business owners. So now they know that the game, they can rig it that way instead of doing the Republican thing, where it's usually just a low tax or a deregulation, and they're on the same playing field as a small business owner. It is an even playing field. They don't want that. They want to hedge the odds in their favor where they can have the Democrats hit the regular business owner with a regular tax, and then them, they get a tax incentive for every single employee they employ. In New York, they get a $5,000 tax incentive like they were going to propose for Amazon. That is now what the Democrat Party is made up of the big, rich billionaires because they know the Democrat Party has no dignity and they have absolutely no morality, so they're okay with giving certain specific business deals and incentives to big business, but not giving it to small business. And then another thing that they go into in this, they talk about the media's concerted efforts to only report certain things as well. And that's, that's really, that is, like I said, that is the fourth branch of our government. They are supposed to be the check on all the other branches and the, and the media. And I just saw Rasmussen poll just came out. The media is they said the poll says that people say the media is not as um, 
questioning of Biden or as critical of Biden as they were during the Trump administration, which is obvious and regular liberals aren't either. They don't care about anything that's being said in any of these press conferences. They don't care about people losing their jobs. It's just because they look up and they see the president is no longer Trump and they don't have to see any memes about him or to, or mean tweets that they don't like that may hurt their feelings. So they're happy that Biden's there taking away people's jobs, extra regulations, and then incentivizing a welfare state. Uh, they just passed the $1.9 trillion in COVID funding. They passed, they didn't pass the actual bill. They passed it so they can clear up the funds to write up the bill and what's it, what, what it's all going to say. Apparently in the middle of March, from what I understand, there's going to be some sort of a vote. So here, just to add on to the media's concerted efforts, I have a clip from Ron DeSantis this past weekend. He, uh, he talked a little bit. He went into the question they asked him was something having to having to do with Donald Trump getting deplatformed on Twitter. Check it out. Well, I think it's been done in a, in a way that's completely unprincipled. I, they, they mentioned the Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden's story was true. OK, we now know it was true. And the typical corporate media outlets, they just chose to ignore it. Obviously, they wanted to beat Trump. They had a they had a, a view on the election. They didn't want to give it any air. So we rely on social media to go around that, not let corporate legacy media outlets control the discourse and let us speak. So you had the New York Post to run it and you couldn't get any traction. You couldn't get any reach on it because big tech put their thumb on the scale. So that was true. What they said at the time, oh, it was it was it's a conspiracy or it's based on 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 hacked information. Are you kidding me? You're trying to tell me if there was hacked information that could damage me, you guys wouldn't print it? Give me a break. You can whiz on my leg, but don't tell me it's raining. You guys would print it every single day if you could. And big tech would allow it to proliferate every single day, 24-7. So that there, that's Ron DeSantis. People are talking about a presidential run in 2024 if it isn't Trump from him. He's really been sticking it to big tech. He pushed a 100000 dollar fine on them through an executive order if they were to shut down somebody that goes to run for any type of office in florida if big tech were to shut them down he would hit them with a hundred thousand dollar fine which really to them isn't that much because they have so much money but if every single state imposed something of that nature it would actually really damage them in the pocket so uh, another thing i also want to mention this literally just came out uh what 821 does this say on oh, no, february 5th 821 p.m so yesterday, this came out last night, the U.S. Supreme Court now is is apparently talking about scheduling Pennsylvania election case, as well as the Michigan case, and the Georgia case, too, on February 19th. So maybe February 19th, they're going to meet together, and they're going to figure out whether or not they want to take some of these cases. Um, we're late. We're a couple months too late, but I guess maybe we can have some rulings on unconstitutional changes to the to the voting, to the voting procedures, uh, or voting laws, which is all unconstitutional the way in which they did it. They did it through executive fiat. Maybe they should actually rule on that to set a precedent so it doesn't happen in the future. Hopefully, God willing, that ends up happening. So yeah, there's, there's Ron DeSantis. He talks about it a little bit. And then I also had Christy Noem. I think I'm going to hold up on that video just for the sake of time. And she talks about it as well. She talks about, and this, she was talking about the local news, talking about how many people have been decimated and how their economy has been damaged through the Keystone pipeline shutdown. People were building up their industries, building up their businesses, especially some of these hotels, some of these bars and diners.
they're preparing themselves for all of these workers here and th that was some of their big customer their biggest customer base and now they lost it because of this and they spent all this money that they're not going to be able to make back now and they may have to shut down because of it so here's another thing this is just to show how concerted the media is in their efforts and Ron DeSantis is what he says hilarious he says don't piss on my leg and tell me that it's that, tell me that it's raining I've never heard that saying or we gotta if, if listen we gotta bring that saying back whatever he said I mean it's unbelievable it's just it's hilarious he's so he's kind of he's kind of dweeby I guess in his approach but I do appreciate him because especially on the COVID COVID uh, shutdowns, he's been very strong. He's been very conservative. He's probably been the most conservative. He's handled it the best in terms of the big thing that the media is always proliferating is the, oh, look, the, the, the case rate is so high in Florida, but they never talk about the death rate or the death per deaths per 100,000 because Florida is very, very low on that list. Whereas New Jersey, New York, literally liberal paradise uh, is probably the top 10 of them. So next what I have, I have the White House asks press to submit questions before briefings. This is a Blaze article. It's written by Chris Enloe. Uh, it is about, it, it's reporting the Daily Beast. Daily Beast had an article that came out saying that the Biden's communication department has requested that reporters submit their questions to the White House staff in advance of Press Secretary Jen Psaki's daily briefings presumably to avoid being scrutinized by reporters with difficult questions. The issue was reportedly discussed during a White House Correspondents Association meeting last Friday. And in response to this, this information, what did the White House say? What did the Biden administration have to say? Biden administrations claimed that asking reporters for their questions ahead of time is not an attempt to dodge questions. So they actually admit to this, but rather to understand the pulse of reporting on any given day. A spokesperson told the Daily Beast, and I quote, Our goal is to make the daily briefing as useful and informative as possible for both reporters and the public. Part of meeting that objective means regularly engaging with the reporters who will be in the briefing room to understand how the White House can be most helpful in getting them the information they need. The two-way conversation is an, is an important part of keeping the American people updated about how government is serving them, end quote. So really, this is, this is a cover-up. Um, I don't know. I'm sure if the Trump administration was asking the media before they went out to give them questions uh, for their questions this would heavily be criticized and reported. Kaylee McEnany was leaps and bounds, uh, much more efficient, much more robust than Jen Psaki. Jen Psaki's answer, now she's avoiding the answer of, what was she saying, the circle back answer, because then recently she came out and said, I don't care what conservative Twitter says, I'm going to continue to circle back, but now she's been actually avoiding saying circle back, and she uses other things like, I don't know, uh, I'm going to have to check back with you, and she, it seems like she has, and I actually, almost to an extent, I actually feel bad for her, <laughs> she feels, she sounds like she has no clue what's going on, like they're just keeping her in the dark, and she's kind of just, she's like that Spartan bronze shield that Biden, the Biden administration is standing behind as arrows are just incoming, and there's no, there's just no answers uh, coming from the Biden administration. 
and to ask for they're asking to have the questions to prepare themselves to give good answers because there's been just so much criticizing of them thus far especially by conservative media sources now the liberal media they don't really ask hard questions but the conservative media has all the questions i've seen that they've gotten stumped on it seems like it's come from the conservative media such as fox news i think the blaze has a guy up there as well that asks questions. I know some religious institutions ask abortion questions and those stump her because it just goes back to recalling how, how Catholic Joe Biden is to, for a cover-up. And this is something that we actually saw during the campaign. Uh, during the campaign, Joe Biden was, his administration or his, his campaign management had the people feeding questions that they already had the answers to. There were pre-written questions to Joe Biden and they were asking them the questions straight off a sheet of paper that were written by the campaign for him to answer. And I remember there was a video that came out. It was, it was a younger black girl. She's probably in her 20s. And she said something like, I don't feel like reading what they wrote for me on this. So I'm just going to ask the, a question that I have like in my head. And they weren't happy about that when she did that. So yes, they, they were. The, and, and also additionally, the people were pre-selected on who he was going to call to to ask questions as well so it's pretty everything it's like scripted essentially it's like you're on the ellen degeneres show and she's sitting there in her little chair and she's asking questions but it's all stuff that's that's written down for her that's been pre-planned and organized so next what i have this is a huge controversy over this week aoc comes out she comes out on instagram right after yelling about how ted cruz tried to murder her or, or planned to murder her she came out with, with a video talking about her experience at the Capitol building during the riot. Uh, play clip six. Like, I'm here, and the bathroom door starts going like this. Like, the bathroom door is behind me, or rather in front of me, and I'm like this, and the door hinges right here. And I just hear, where is she? Where is she? And um, this was the moment where I thought everything was over. So her account, that's her account there of what happened and, and news started to come out and it started to permeate throughout media that she actually was not in the Capitol building during the riot, which is actually as a true statement. She was not in the Capitol building during the riot. She was in her own office which is not in the Capitol building. I'm going to try to find the visual here, the screenshot that I have. Here it is. Okay, so as you can see, people that are watching me on Rumble, otherwise I'll try to explain it to you the best way I can. She is to the, from what it seems like, the south of the Capitol building. They're not interconnected buildings. It looks like it's about a 10-minute, from what I understand from what reports say, it is a 10-minute walk from the Capitol building. It is the Cannon House office building. In her office she was while the rioters were breaching the building on the the front side of the United States Capitol. I think that's that's considered the north side. So she wasn't even in the building for this, and and her she went goes through the whole story, and then she goes how the and it was really sad what she said about the Capitol police officer. She was ripping into him, saying, "Oh well, I didn't know if he was a Capitol police officer. He didn't have his partner with him. He wasn't really that nice. He was, you know, he's urgent in his calls, which is like, yeah, I understand that he's urgent in his calls. It's a high stress scenario and situation, and he's trying to get you to, he's trying to compel you to move and get out of the way, and he's trying to really protect your safety. But she really just alienates this guy and makes it." 
like he was just a terrible person. And that was another thing that just recently came out. That Capitol Police officer passed away now. These reports are coming out from his autopsy saying apparently it wasn't blunt force trauma to the head from being hit by a fire extinguisher. From what I understand now, it, it was a some sort of a reaction that he had to pepper spray and he had some issues with breathing. From, from what I understand, that's some of the news that seems like it's coming out. It hasn't been completely confirmed yet. But just maybe look that up, check it out. Apparently, there was actually no blunt force trauma, no visual blunt force trauma to his head, from what I understand. But, I mean, not that, I mean, the guy passed away. Either way, nothing brings him back, so there's really nothing on that. But, yeah, so she she got caught in her lie here, and the media's been covering up for her. She's actually been telling people... She sent, I think it was anyone on her email list, telling people any information related to me not being in a place at a time. Just report it so the tech oligarchs can shut it all down. And oh, here's another thing that I also had that I, I forgot to report here. John Kerry as well. Just talk about how the media really covers up for the Democrat Party. You have this going on with AOC. No one really says anything. And people that are her dissenters, her adversaries are just going after her and she really has no answer. And then she holds this weird little ceremony at the Capitol building or the house floor to talk about their experiences of that day. It's like we're, uh, they're sitting there talking about their experiences of that day as the American people are sitting here, many of them unemployed, suffering, waiting for a COVID bill that you guys haven't figured out yet. And it's been months. So that's great. Uh, so just play, and this this is John Kerry. They ask him a little bit about why is it that you fly private if you're so about if you're so important if climate change is so important to you. Play clip uh, seven. On that issue, pollution. I understand that you came here with a private jet. Uh, is that the, an environmental way to travel? If you offset your carbon, it's the only choice for somebody like me, who is traveling the world to win this battle. Uh, I negotiated the Paris Accords uh, for the United States. I've been involved in this fight for years. I negotiated with President Xi to bring President Xi to the table so we could get Paris. And uh, I believe the time it takes me to get somewhere. I can't sail across the ocean. I have to fly to meet with people and get things done. But what I'm doing almost full time is working to win the battle of climate change. Do you notice how he completely dodged the question of why is it that you f didn't say why is it that you fly private and you don't fly commercial? And his answer is, oh well, you know, if I reset, if I re, I don't know how you can really reset your carbon emissions. What are you doing? Oh, you know, I'm I'm getting in the Paris Climate Accord. Just for everyone, just to clear the record, set the record straight here. While we were not in the Paris Climate Agreement, we still had the lo the lowest carbon emissions that we have ever had. We lessened our carbon footprint more than any of the countries that were involved in that Paris Climate Accord. So it's all a bunch of garbage. Uh, now, John Kerry, the question to him is, oh, why do you still fly private? And he dodges the question saying, if I somehow can offset my carbon emissions with what I do in my personal life. And I'm like, well, what are you doing in your personal life? Are you growing a couple trees in the backyard and, and throwing away a couple plastic containers? I don't, I mean, I don't really understand, but he thinks that him, that his essentially rules for thee, but not for me. I don't have to abide by any rules because I am a politician and I am a political elitist class. So the rules don't apply to me. So next what I have, I have Biden's executive order to incentivize immigrant welfare programs. It's a Breitbart News article. Uh, now, John, 
And this is this is him enacting more big business policy, and I'm going to explain why. And it actually goes into it a little bit, I think, in this article. This is actually a very important article if you ever want to show any of your friends this, just to show that the that the Democrat parties and big businesses they're colluding together with each other. Uh, so John Binder is the writer. It starts off in May 2019. President Trump signed an order to enforce Clinton era laws from 1996 that delegated all financial responsibility to a family member or business sponsor of a foreign na- national seeking a green card when they had previously used welfare programs. The order cut loose taxpayers from having to pay the cost. In addition, the order ensured that the income of the, a sponsor was taken into consideration when a foreign national seeking a green card was applying for various welfare benefits. Now Biden has revoked those rules in an effort to revamp welfare-dependent legal immigration that leaves taxpayers on the hook for covering the costs. Those costs, federal officials have previously said, amounts to billions over the years. Biden's order also requests multiple federal agencies to review all agency actions related to implementation of what is known as the public charge rule. The rule implemented by Trump last year made it less likely that foreign nationals would secure green cards to permanently stay in the U.S. if they had previously taken welfare, including any cash benefits for income maintenance, supplemental security income, temporary assistance to needy families, and food stamps. So, this is the most important part. Understand this. This is a bill from the Clinton era that Trump signed in an order that was from, it was a Clinton era law that he was now enforcing. So this was what the Democrat party used to actually be about in 1996 during the Clinton administration. They were making the financial responsibility of the member or the person, the the sponsor of the foreign national. So when they went to get their green card and then they went to apply for some sort of social service to get paid by out by the government in welfare payments or food stamps, it was now the person, the sponsor, it was a liability to them, and they were held accountable for this, for these various welfare benefits, which would then deter them from taking on foreigners as empl- employing foreigners, rather, foreign nationals, which aren't, aren't citizens, rather than American citizens. So this was a good policy, and this is a policy, as a, as a conservative, I agree with. Now, uh... For Clinton, because this is a pro-America policy. This is getting the American worker to work rather than the foreign national because the foreign national is now on the responsibility of their sponsors and their green card holders. Uh, If they go and get some sort of supplemental plan, if they get some sort of welfare program, it's on them. Thus, it deters them to hire foreign nationals rather than hire... And we're not talking about people that are actual... uh, citizens of the united states talking about foreign nationals people that are here just to get their their visas to work that are sponsored it actually incentivizes the hiring of united states citizens rather than foreign nationals so that that's a policy that is a pro-america policy whatever way you want to put it it is better for the american worker because it also drives up their wage as well so when Trump first issued the public charge order in 2019, polls found that the policy was overwhelmingly popular with Americans. About 6 in 10 Americans said they supported ending welfare-dependent legal immigration, including 
This is important. 56% of Hispanics and 71% of black Americans. Why is this? Because they know that this affects them the most. This voting, this voting class, this affects them the most disproportionately. For years, the big business lobby and corporate interests had denounced the public charge rule because they said they needed welfare-dependent legal immigrants to grow the economy, create more consumers, and secure a low-wage U.S. workforce. So, big corporations never liked this plan because they wanted to be able to hire as many, think about this, they wanted to be as, able to hire as many immigrants as they could, get them on welfare and make them welfare dependent so they're not the ones fronting the bill to pay them, but the American people are paying them and they are getting extremely cheap labor. So Americans partially are paying for these people in their job because these rich dudes didn't want to pay them a, a solid wage and they knew they could get away with this. Rather than Americans, they can't do some, the same to Americans, but they knew that they could do the same uh, to foreigners. Welfare-dependent legal immigrants. It's unbelievable. So, and now, now what I have next, I have this chart, and it is from the Center for Immigration Studies. It is based on the 2014 Survey of Income and Program Participation. Cash welfare includes uh, EITC, that supplemental security insurance, food assistance, food stamps, uh, school lunch, breakfast programs, all that, all of that. Any, any, essentially any type of government subsidy. And I remember reading this years ago. Uh, it seems like I think it's actually increased. I'm pretty sure, or actually. Yeah, I believe it's increased from what these numbers are now. So non-citizen households, and this is important. So people that are here on their work visas, any type of welfare, 63% of them are getting any type of welfare. It's uh, and then you have, <clears throat> and then you have all immigrant households, citizen and non-citizen, 55% of them are getting any type of welfare. Naturalized citizen households, which is you're here, you come here, and then I think you become you become a citizen through the process. I'm pretty sure that's what a naturalized citizen household. That's fifty percent. And then you have the native households, people that have lived in America. They they thirty five percent of them are on any type of welfare system. So we have a huge welfare state in this country. Just to begin with uh, the fact that these numbers are are this high. Now, the non-citizen households are the ones that we're really looking at, as well as the immigrant households, whether they're citizen or non-citizen. There's a high percentage of them that are getting government subsidy programs. To, it's pretty much subsidizing the rich guy's money by the middle class worker is paying taxes to make the rich guy not have to pay uh, for benefits for their workers, and they get a nice cheap labor force. So, so repealing what Trump was trying to impose here, which was a Clinton-era policy, is something that only benefits the rich guys it does not benefit anybody else even even these immigrants that are coming over it doesn't benefit them in any way for them to have to sit on welfare in a welfare state it, it is not it, it is there's no pride in that they probably they probably do not want to be on welfare they probably want to work for a living like normal people do and this is a rich guy policy once again just to just to be clear here this is a rich dude policy this helps big rich dudes because they have to they could pay low wage they get cheap labor and then they also don't have to really front the bill on the wage either or give them any type of benefits or plans because the government us the middle class taxpayer is fronting the bill so next what i have and this this goes more in depth on and i spoke about this earlier on an earlier show the bill that would turn millions of peaceful gun owners into felons this is a reason.com article is written by jacob salam 
Now, this talks about Sheila Lee Jackson, or is it Sheila Jackson Lee's plan? And she's a Democrat uh, House of Rep member in Texas for gun reform. And I actually didn't read into it as much, and now I actually got the full article of some of some of the stuff that would be that would be imposed from this from this bill. Now it starts off. The registration requirement applies to both currently owned firearms and guns purchased after the bill takes effect. So they're going to want a federal registration of firearms uh, currently owned and newly bought. The bill would give current owners three months to report the make, model, and serial number of the firearm, the identity of the owner of the firearm, the date the firearm was acquired by the owner, and where the firearm is or will be stored as well as the identity of any person to whom in any period of time during which the firearm will be loaned to the person. Uh, new buyers would have to report the information on the date of the purchase. Failure to comply would be pun punishable by a minimum fine of $75,000, a minimum prison sentence of 15 years or both. So a minimum. We're talking maximum 15 years. So if you fail to go tell the government that you have legally purchased firearms uh, within these three months, you are suddenly now a criminal and the minimum... Prison sentence is 15 years and a fine of $75,000, which is an unbelievable fine. And this is somebody that has proposed lower prison sentences for criminals, but now she wants to impose a 15-year prison sentence on law-abiding citizens, law-abiding gun owners. And let me tell you something about this. This will be probably in the history of America the most, the most, uh, the most, this will not be an abided by law. If this bill were to pass through, en masse, there will be a, uh, just no, no one will follow this law. <laughs> this is not going to be something that's going to be followed. And if this gets passed, this is, we are no, this, I mean, already I don't think that we're a completely free nation as we should be, but this will solidify that. Now there's there's more to go on here. There will be a, this is the word I was trying to say, there will be a massive non-compliance with this and you can perp walk everybody every legal gun owner that believes in freedom and liberty you can perp walk each and every single one of them out of their houses because they are not going to abide by this so next licenses would be limited to people 21 or older who pass the criminal background check undergo a psychological examination complete at least 24 hours of training and pay a one eight hundred dollar fee for liability insurance the examination which may include assessing other members of the household in which the individual resides would be conducted by a government approved psychologist charged with determining whether the applicant is psychologically unsuited to possess a firearm so, you would have to have your own criminal background check, your own psychological examination. Everybody that lives in your house as well, also, psychological examination. 24 hours of training, and you would have to pay an $800 fee on top of all of that for liability insurance. And you already, if you live in New Jersey, you have to pay for the federal firearms um, card. You need to pay for pistol permits. It's not a lot of money, and they're trying to impose even more fees, such as something like 500 I remember hearing in New Jersey. So, next... The psychologist would be required to interview any spouse of the individual, any former spouse of the individual, any former, any former spouse of the individual. I can't see any problems there. And at least two other persons 
who are a member of the family of or an associate of the individual to further determine the state of the mental, emotional, and relational stability of the individual in relation to firearms. Denial of a license would be mandatory if the applicant has ever been hospitalized because of conduct that endangers self or others, a brain disease such as dementia or Alzheimer's, of a mental illness disturbance or diagnosis, including but not necessarily necessarily limited to depression, homicidal ideation, suicidal ideation, attempted suicide and addiction to a controlled substance or alcohol. Here's the most important part. When I worked, I worked in the hospital at one point uh, as a security officer. When I worked there, people would come in all the time and we would pretty much lock them. I, I mean, you wouldn't lock them, but you would lock them in a in a unit with behavioral issues. People that have behavioral issues, paranoid schizophrenia, they would all be in a room together, these people. Sometimes we would put people that were too drunk and just came in when they were drunk, we'd throw them in there as well. So that automatically, if, if you had a night where you drank too much, you automatically would be taken off. You would no longer be able to possess a firearm, ever, for the rest of your life. This, this is a life sentence here. If you have ever been hospitalized, period, the end, full stop, you would automatically be taken off. And here's another thing. If you were younger, let's say you were 14, 15 years old, you know, you, you went through something dramatic in your life and you went and you, you sought help for, for that dramatic, um, that dramatic incident, incident that happened. Now you yourself never, never can never be a firearm owner. That's considered some sort of uh, depression that you that you experienced when you were a kid. It's unbelievable. Uh, so next, it goes on. If an applicant does not survive this gauntlet, it would be a felony for him to possess a firearm punishable by the same fines and, and prison sentences as failure to register. It would be a felony for... Okay. That applies to current owners as well as new buyers. People who have been licensed... For less than five years would have to renew their licenses every year. People who have been licensed five years or longer would be eligible for three-year licenses. If a gun owner neglects to renew his license, he would be subject to the same fines and prison time as someone who never got a license. So just to be clear here, if you go after your gun owner, your legal gun owner now, this, this new law gets put in place. You have to now go for some sort of psychological exam. If they say you're unfit, you have to give up all of your guns. If you don't give up all of your guns, is a felony charge. You're going to go to jail for at least 15 years, $75,000 fine. On top of that, then additionally, if you, if you're legal and you're good to go, you have to get a, your license. And if you've had your license for less than five years, then you have to renew it every single year. You have to go through this entire process all over again, from what it seems like. And then if you have for more than five years, you've got to go through the whole process again every three years. So, so it continues. Uh, Sheila Jackson Lee lists a bunch of specific models that qualify as military-style weapons, a.k.a. assault weapons. The definition also includes semi-automatic rifles that accept detachable magazines and have two or more of these features, a holding or telescoping stock, a pistol grip that protrudes conspicuously beneath the action of the weapon, a bayonet mount, a flash suppressor or threaded barrel designed to accommodate a flash suppressor or a grenade launcher. So, to begin with, grenade launchers, I'm pretty sure, on the NFA list, they may actually be completely illegal. I think you have to pay a lot of money to get one of those. I'm pretty sure they're not even legal uh, through citizens. Law enforcement can have them. I'm pretty sure. Now... Assault weapon to them, they're classifying as any rifle that has a pistol grip, which is most rifles, uh, 
and another these are all cosmetic things that are added to the gun and one other attachment that is against a, a telescoping stock isn't a stock that moves that can be moved that isn't fixed in one spot on your shoulder and the a threaded barrel is something that a, a flash suppressor could be added to. Flash su suppressor suppressor once again is an NFA certified item. You have to you have to actually go and register to get one. To, so there's so many different specific uh, specific rules. So so really the way that this would go is you can't even buy a flash suppress suppressor and put it on your gun even if it's legally certified because then that makes your gun an assault weapon as long as it has a pistol grip which most guns do most rifles do unless if it's a hunting rifle a lot of hunting rifles or old school rifles don't have the pistol grip they have that old school you know that car 98k world war ii style on it so it goes on. Lee is not waiting to ban large caliber ammunition and magazines that hold more than 10 rounds, uh, which are standard for many popular guns and rifles. Pose, uh, possessing the former would be pun punishable by a minimum of $50,000, a minimum prison term of 10 years or both. Uh, possessing the latter would be punishable by a minimum fine of $10,000, at least a year in prison or both. So I guess they're saying, oh, handguns would be 50,000 or 10 years, and then a rifle. Lee's not waiting to ban large caliber ammunition and magazines that hold more than 10. Oh, so the large caliber ammunition would be 10 years or both. And any, any magazine that holds more than 10 rounds would be a year in prison, at least a year. Any gun possessed by someone who has failed to register it or does not have a current federal license likewise would be subject to confiscation. That person could then be prosecuted and sent to prison for at least 15 years. Once again, these are all at least. And this is the most important part about the bill, and this is this is the most interesting part. So what we're looking at in, in a general sense is we're looking at a redemption of the, I think it was the 1992 assault rifle ban from the Clinton administration, which was found not to at not to lower uh, gun homicides at all and had really no effect thus they got rid of it and this is st it's still imposed in in new jersey as far as i know uh now lee's bill is named after sabika sheik a foreign exchange student from pakistan who was murdered in the 2018 mass shooting at santa fe high school in texas now here's the kicker about this the perpetrator of that attack was 17 meaning it was already illegal for him to possess the 38 caliber revolver he used uh in addition to the revolver he had a 12 gauge shotgun neither would qualify as a military style weapon under sheila jackson lee's new proposed bill in other words her legislation has nothing to do with the crime she invokes to justify it which is par for the course with a with anti-gun politicians the system lee imagines is completely impractical since gun owners would be understandably reluctant to identify themselves and their firearms so they could be entered into a federal database and required to apply for licenses politicians pursuing far less ambitious gun registration schemes have found that voluntary compliance is the exception rather than the rule since the justice department would not have the resources to go after millions of recalcitrant uh, gun owners even if it knew who they were the result would be random application of lee's draconian penalties to the few who happen to attract the government's attention so yeah this this is something that they believe would be used uh partially if you will and it has nothing to do with 
the person that actually passed away from a mass shooting because they were using a 38 caliber revolver, which has nothing to do with big. That's not a big caliber. It also was not something that had a lot of ma uh, rounds in the magazine because revolvers don't even have a magazine. So this is completely unrelated to the legislation that she's pushing here. And people, there's going to be a mass non-compliance. No one will listen to this. So you're going to you're going to perp walk a bunch of people that are law-abiding citizens out of their houses because of this, and you're going to make criminals out of them because this is what the government this is what the government does to people that uh, yearn for freedom. So at the very end here, to uh, to just show even further hypocrisy from Sheila Jackson Lee. Who would those uh, people tend to be? A legislator who decries racial bias in policing, Lee ought to know. Current restrictions on gun ownership already disproportionately hurt African Americans who are more likely than whites to have felony records that permanently bar them from possessing firearms for self-defense no matter the nature of the offense or how long ago it happened. Lee's bill would not, would not only, oh, would only compound that problem. Call that what you want. But it is manifestly not an attempt to fix a deeply flawed criminal justice system that is often more effective at creating criminals and collateral damage than actual justice. And that's something that, that's quoting her. It should go without say that violent criminals will be even less motivated to comply with Lee's requirements than the average gun owner. They already obtain, possess, and use guns illegally. They will not be phased by another layer of criminality, which is completely correct. If somebody's going to go already commit the crime of robbing the bank, they're not worried about how they're obtaining the weapon. They've already made the decision that that's the crime that they're going to commit. So next what I have, and this is to, I think this is to end it here. Oh no, I got, I got two more here. So Cuomo opens up dining amid higher uh, case risk at this point. Governor Cuomo is a complete joke. Uh, this is written by Jordan Lancaster, Daily Caller article. It's just, He's saying now beforehand that the, they're reopening indoor dining on February 14th, which doesn't really make any sense because as you can see from this chart, seven-day average of new cases in New York City, the on average it is, is this by number, by thousands? Oh, okay. So the amount of cases per ca average per capita case counts in New York City are 64% higher than they were in December. <laughs> so we've had an increase in case rate. And case counts per capita, so we're looking at increases here. And he's going to now suddenly reopen indoor dining because we found out that all of these policies actually had nothing to do with the science and they were mostly political uh, for political expediency. And he got caught in his own game where he, he misreported. So here's another statistic here. Every hospitalization per 100,000 people also rose from December to January. There was a seven-day average of 209 coronavirus hospitalizations per 100,000 people on December 11th. And on January 28th, when he said that, that he's going to do this, the seven-day average was 335 hospitalizations uh, per 100,000 people, according to the New York Times. The seven-day average test positivity rate was 4% when the ban was announced and now it is 5.3 percent when it was announced that the ban would be lifted so we're looking at a a far a, a pretty substantial increase from 209 hospitalizations per 100,000 people and 335 it's about a 50 percent it's actually more um than a 50 percent increase and now suddenly it's okay to eat inside because because there was it was all political it had actually nothing to do with science because then they also found out that case rate transmission was only one percent in these establishments where you sit down to eat 
So congressional, but I have a very last thing here, and then I'll get through my couple of headlines just to look out for. Congressional Budget Office reports economy will recover in 2022. There's a Daily Caller article. I personally don't think this is actually going to happen, but I'd, I'd love for it to happen. So I'm going to read all this off for you. This is a report coming from the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, the U.S. gross domestic product, the GDP, will return to its previous peak halfway through 2021, and the unemployment rate will return to normal by 2022. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office reported released Monday found, CNBC reported. The CBO, which is the Congressional Budget Office, forecast doesn't factor in any future coronavirus stimulus legislation, which could potentially speed up an economic recovery uh, even more, which I don't believe either. <laughs> the GDP is expected to surge 3.7% in 2021, the CBO report found. In 2020, the economy shrank 3.5%, the nation's worst economic performance since 1940, the 1940s due to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic and despite massive third and fourth quarter economic growth. The International Monetary Fund, and, and, and just to be clear, 3.5%, if you really actually think about it and you consider 3.5% loss of GDP, considering the way that this year has gone so far, uh, is really not that astronomical <laughs> from, from what you understand. When we had complete shutdowns of some industries, we had 30% of small businesses went out of business, and we only saw really a 3.5% reduction is, is actually not that bad. I hate to, you know, I hate to make, make, uh, make wine out of grapes, but... The International Monetary Fund, meanwhile, raised its U.S. GDP forecast for 2021 to 5.1% on January 26th. So just, just do the math on that. 5.1% really what it is is you, you have to look at the difference. But we lost 3.5% GDP. That hasn't happened since the 1940s uh, after, you know, after Great Depression era type statistics there. So you have to really take the average. What is the difference between 3.5% and 5.1% and it's really 1.6%. So we're only actually looking for an increase in GDP in 2021 of 1.6%. But it's, you know, from what we were in, uh, in 2019. And that's really what we should be judging. Those are the numbers we should be looking at economically. But, you know, 5.1%, I guess, would be all right on January 26th. According to Market Watch, in addition to the positive 2021 projection, GDP will grow 2.4% and 2.3% in 2022 and 2023, respectively. Now, those are those are horrible numbers. Uh, I don't know why they're building them up. Trump administration hit 3% pretty easily. And I think the first I think the first year it was in the twos, and then the second, third year it was in the threes, the GDP increases, which was never even seen. During eight years of Obama, he never hit 3% GDP increase. So when we look at 2.4% and 2.3%, really the bigger thing is not the 2.4% for 2021. It's the 2.3 in 2022 and 2023. That's not really impressive numbers. Maybe they're trying to build this up because, I don't know, for the current administration. The U.S. unemployment rate is expected to decline to 5.3% in 2021 and to 4.9% by 2022. According to the CBO, the current unemployment is 6.7%, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Now, the unemployment rate during the Trump administration was 3.5%, which is, I don't know if we're ever going to get back to those numbers. Um, just keep an eye out on this. I like reporting what's going on economically, the jobs numbers, uh, GDP, things of that nature. 
Now, we'll, we'll keep an eye on this. We'll see how the numbers are going to play out, hopefully, with vast regulations that may benefit big business. So it may keep us afloat, but will substantially hurt small business. But we'll see what goes on, what's going to happen here, what will transpire. So these are the couple headlines I have. Removing, and this is because I forgot her name. I think it's Marjorie... Marjorie Taylor Green or Marjorie Green? No, Marjorie Taylor Green. They removed her from all of her committee assignments recently. The legislative branch they voted on at the House of Reps because she she believed in QAnon or something of that nature before she was even elected. Then she went back. She gave her apology speech. Said, "Hey, listen, I don't believe in any of that stuff anymore. I'm here for the people." And then they still got her out, kicked her out of all of her committees, and ostracized her from the community. And she actually has a very very and I think. I want to say she's in Georgia. She is a very, very conservative base, and they support her 100%. This is not the end of this lady. She will continue to be here. But now they're talking about, because she, they were doing that at the time, they're talking about removing Ilhan Omar from from national committees because she is a outright anti-Semite. And there's a lot of quotes there that... Uh, that you can use to support that assertion. And uh, that is a post-millennial article. They talk about it. They talk about all the quotes that she said. So next what I also have, I have Washington Times article, 11 Iranians arrested in Arizona after jumping U.S.-Mexico border. So when Trump said that we had people from the Middle East, Iranians in particular, terrorists that were coming over the southern border, he was actually correct. Yes, 11 Iranians were arrested. Why? How did Iranians come from the Mexico border? Because they knew that that's a soft target and it is easy or it's a soft border that is easy to break through rather than try to come here through plane or through the canadian border now youtube demonetizes the epic times that is an epic times article uh interestingly enough youtube has decided to demonetize a lot of conservatives right now the news is coming out and they're purging a lot of their content such as mine as well uh this is new from youtube maybe there's going to be an actual kickoff from the site i, I see that coming next is we're going to just purge completely kick all the conservatives off of our um off of our video players and uploading content so i highly suggest everyone if you're going to listen to me go to rumble and listen to me there because that's where i'm actually allowed to speak freely so next, Biden is now putting kids in cages. Isn't uh, the National Pulse has an article talking about now Biden? They're reimposing or they're opening up another facility. And you know what's funny? I reported this a couple videos ago about, and I think it was a Breitbart or a, the Blaze article. They were reopening these these facilities for kids to put them in cages again. But now it's now it's considered. Uh, acceptance facilities or something of that nature they word it differently now but they're still putting kids in cages like they were young before during the trump administration next the who defends china on coronavirus transparency that's a, a daily caller article and the who is just defending uh china saying oh well they were very transparent with their coronavirus statistics which is not true now the and, and that's debunked in the daily Car caller article now, the liberal media network's ratings declining. Uh, this is a Bongino piece. This one's hilarious. MSNBC, I didn't get a number on them, how much they've declined since uh, Trump is no longer in office. But we're seeing a 44% ratings plunge coming from CNN because they have nothing to report now because it's always Trump, Trump, Trump. Trump's crazy. If it bleeds, it leads. But now there's no Donald Trump anymore, so they have nothing to report. Lastly... Uh, coronavirus cost Trump re-election. This is a Breitbart piece. It is very, very interesting. It's claiming, and, and there was a study done, maybe if I could pull it up just real quick. <clears throat> there was a study done 
stating that Trump, uh, this chief campaign pollster, Tony Fabrizio, drafted this, this trying to figure out, it was a 27-page uh, report from Politico talking about how Trump was able to hold certain states but lost others, and they, they went through, I guess, and asked certain people and did polling numbers, and they found that they people thought that Joe Biden can handle uh, coronavirus better than Donald Trump did, and all the policies so, thus far that he's enacted uh joe biden have mostly been trump policies to begin with i think it has absolutely this this study has zero to do with the people i mean with the way trump actually did things i think much more it has to do with the way that the media portrays trump to biden and the media has tricked the people into thinking that joe biden some big grand wizard genius and donald trump's the evil maniac in office i think it has much more uh, there's much more correlation to that than than uh, than Donald Trump actually handling it badly from the federal government from the the presidential position. I, I guess there needs to be some sort of there needs to be some sort of education on this. But the federal government position, the president does not really have the power to handle anything of that nature. That should be coming from the legislative branch, and there should be some sort of education on that. That the legislative branch really holds all the power as it related to COVID virus uh, relief funding, a lot of restrictions. Trump did everything he can as it related to you know flying from one place to another. But there's really not much more you can impose. You can't impose from the you can't impose from the legislative or the executive branch a mandatory mask mandate you just cannot do it by law it's not i mean you could you could do it but there's once again there's going to be a mass non-compliance so that will really uh, that'll conclude this one i greatly appreciate everyone for tuning in please like share subscribe uh, share the podcast let people know about it i cannot once again I, i'm unable to advertise so word of mouth is how this podcast gets around share it with your friends let them know about it uh, a lot of data driven here if you if you want your one shop stop for all of your news and i come out with news about twice a week when i'm done with these federalist paper episodes i'll probably be doing like a monday wednesday friday or monday wednesday uh saturday like a weekend episode i'll probably go three times a week which will give me much more scope to find more information and and you know i'll have more i'll have more current news to report so but but thank you for tuning in everybody have a great weekend i greatly appreciate it i will see you all on monday